Please stand for the reading of God's word. Romans 16, 1 through 16. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Kenkri, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints, and help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Epinetus, who is the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Greet Ampeliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Stachis. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman, Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphenia and Tryphosa. Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Greet Asencritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobas, Hermas, and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philogus, Julia, Nereus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. This is the word of our Lord. Well, that was impressive. Thanks, Isaac. Let's bow our heads one more time to pray. Our Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the opportunity you've given us to hear your word, to sit under your word, and to be taught by you, by your spirit. Lord, God, give us teachable hearts this morning. Encourage us, strengthen us, edify your church, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning's passage is an important passage for us today. I want to start with a little bit of history. In 1930... In Birmingham, Alabama, there was a law that was passed that said it shall be unlawful for a Negro and a white person to play together or in company with each other in any game of cards or dice, dominoes or checkers. In Arkansas, 1903, Law was on the books that said it shall be unlawful for any white prisoner to be handcuffed or otherwise chained or tied to a Negro prisoner. Atlanta, Georgia, in 1926, had a law on the books that said no colored barber shall serve as a barber to white women or girls. In Oklahoma, 1915. 
the corporate commission is hereby vested with power to require telephone companies in the state of Oklahoma to maintain separate booths for white and colored patrons when there is a demand for such separate booths. Our theme this morning is greet one another. Everyone say greet one another. And greeting one another is not to be assumed. To have the capacity to look someone in the eye and to say hello has not always been a guaranteed right in our world, much less in our country. To greet one another should not be taken for granted. It is a privilege, an opportunity, an invitation for relationship. Now, if you wonder where I get the theme, greet one another, I invite you to look at your text because you must have been in the bathroom because it's everywhere in this text. Look at verse 3 with me. Paul says, greet Prisca and Aquila. Verse 5, greet also the church in their house. 5b, greet my beloved Epinatus. 6, greet Mary. 7, greet Andronicus and Junia. 8, greet Ampliatus. 9, greet Urbanus and my beloved Stachys. 10, greet Apelles who is approved in Christ. 10b, greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. 11, greet my kinsman Herodion. 11b, greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. 12, greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphena and Tryphosa. 12b, greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. 13, greet Rufus, chosen the Lord, also his mother. 14, greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobas, Hermas, and the brothers who are with them. 15, greet Philologus, Julia, Nereus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. 16, greet one another with a holy kiss, all the churches of Christ. Greet you. Everyone say, greet one another. It seems to be a theme. 18 times the word greet is used in this passage. We have 26 individuals, two families, and three house churches who are the recipients of these greetings. The Holy Spirit wants us to get that we should greet one another. One more time. Everyone say, greet one another. Now, first thing I want you to see is what it means to greet one another. The basic meaning for greet is to embrace or to draw to oneself. The act of, of, of greeting can involve an embrace. It can involve a kiss, a handshake, or even a bow to someone in authority. We can see the physical nature of this greeting in verse 16. Look with me where it says simply, greet one another with a holy kiss. Now, in some cultures, to greet with a kiss is very common. The Journal of Cross-Cultural Psychology calls these kind of cultures contact cultures. They are cool with extending a a kiss across personal space with more physical contact. It would not be unusual to travel to Argentina or to Madrid, Spain, and to greet someone with a kiss. But in more non-contact cultures like the one we find ourselves into, if you were to reach across the personal space to greet someone with a kiss, you might get slapped in the face. And, and I just want to say right now that one of, my, one of the applications I see from this text is not going to be greet everyone in the congregation with a holy kiss. Because this is a different kind of kiss. 
The kiss here is a holy kiss. The word holy means separate, distinct, set apart. It's a different kind of kiss. It's, it's, a, it's a concrete action of familiarity. This is not your run-of-the-mill garden variety kiss. This is an action that reveals a deeper reality. Listen to how one New Testament scholar describes this verse. When Paul admonishes them all to greet one another with a holy kiss in 1616, he is encouraging, listen to this, a concrete action that would demonstrate their solidarity and equality with one another. A holy kiss is a demonstration of their solidarity and their equality with one another. Now, I want to talk about these two terms, solidarity and equality. First one, solidarity. You want to say solidarity? solidarity. Oxford would tell us that solidarity is the unity or agreement of feeling or action, especially among individuals with a common interest. So it's a unity of feeling or a unity of action or an agreement of feeling or an agreement of action with those who you are like, who, who share a common interest. The, the idea is to be in one accord. It means that when you suffer, I suffer. When I suffer, you suffer. When you rejoice, I rejoice. When I rejoice, you rejoice. That's what we're talking about. <clears throat> and we can see this solidarity throughout our passage. Look in verse 1 and 2. Verses 1 and 2, we, we, we find Phoebe. Verse 1, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Kincray that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Phoebe is commended by Paul to the Romans. She is likely carrying the letter of Paul to the Romans, which means that when she gets there, she's going to be responsible for reading it, interpreting it, answering questions about it, which means this woman has been given an incredible role of responsibility in the church. There's a massive role to, to, to fill. And she's called a servant of the church in verse 1. And Paul recognizes her as a patron for many believers, including Paul. This means Phoebe is likely a wealthy benefactor who supports the ministry financially and who likely hosts missionaries in her house. She's wealthy because she has the capacity to travel to a place like Rome. She's not a generous donor who's aloof to the happenings of the ministry she supports, but rather, through her contributions, she stands in solidarity with the ministry and is commended as such. And John Kelsey used to say that those who contribute to a ministry have a fraction of the action. They are an integral part of the work that goes on. Many of you give financially, not only to support the church, but, but you give to support people who are on staff with the church and missionaries who are overseas through our church and other churches. You, you are a, a giving church, and that is not a small thing. When we give to support the ministry to be a patron of someone, that is no small act of worship. That is a participation in solidarity with those who are working. Paul says to welcome her, which you can see as an extension of a greeting. Look in verse 3. Prisca and Aquila are commended as, quote, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus who risk their, their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Now, the Greek here 
for risk their necks for my life is risk their necks for my life. Look it up. We don't know exactly what Paul is referring to here. A lot of scholars believe that he's talking about the massive riot that we read about in Acts 19 that happened in Ephesus where Paul's about to go into the riot and people call him back and, and, and save his life. That could be what he's talking about. We don't know exactly. But we know that whatever's going on is has to do with the gospel because the churches of the Gentiles are thinking Prisca and Aquila. And we know it's major enough for all the churches of the Gentiles to thank Prisca and Aquila for risking their, their, their lives for Paul. To risk one's very neck, to stand with someone at the risk of your life is the pinnacle of solidarity. And Paul says to greet them. Look in verse 7. Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and fellow prisoners. This is likely a Jewish couple who had spent time in prison for the sake of the gospel. We don't know if they were in prison with Paul or Paul just knew about their imprisonment. But either way, their suffering was proof of their solidarity. Their suffering was proof of their solidarity. Paul says to greet them. Let me just note that suffering will prove your solidarity. Suffering will test your solidarity. Let me tell a story to illustrate this point. Albert Bigelow was born into a prominent Boston family. His dad was a Harvard-educated lawyer who would serve in the Massachusetts House of Representatives and would go on to be on the board of overseers for Harvard University. Like his father, Bert attended Harvard, like his father, with his twin brother, and they played defensemen for the Harvard Crimson hockey team. Bert graduated from Harvard and, some might say, made a uh, descent. He went to the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, MIT, from Harvard to MIT, and finished there with a degree in architecture. From there, he went to New York and began to design residences and even designed a few buildings for the 1939 World's Fair in New York City. That was 1939. After the U.S. entered World War II, Burt was selected to enlist, and he ended up becoming a captain of the USS Dale W. Peterson, a destroyer escort for the U.S. Navy. He was going from San Diego to Pearl Harbor, standing on the bridge, when he got word of the explosion of an atomic bomb over Hiroshima. And for him, that changed his life. In his words, he says, intuitively, it was then that I realized for the first time that morally war was impossible. A decade after the war, 1954, Bert, Albert Bigelow, Bert, and his wife, Sylvia, joined the Quakers. A year later, he and his wife, Sylvia, welcomed two of the Hiroshima maidens into their home. Now, the Hiroshima maidens were a group of 25 school-aged girls who had been in Hiroshima at the time of the detonation, and they were severely disfigured by the blast. And they came to the U.S. for plastic surgery. Well, he and his wife, Sylvia, hosted two of these Hiroshima maidens in their home. 
From this experience, Bert determined to live a life of nonviolence and reconciliation. And that decision would lead him to eventually take a bus trip from Washington, D.C., headed toward New Orleans, Louisiana. And he would take that bus trip with a 20-year-old college student named John Lewis. Bert was 55 years old. John Lewis was 20 years old. And they became known as two of the original Freedom Riders. Now, on May 9th, 1961, their bus pulled into the burst terminal at Rock Hill, South Carolina. Lewis got off the bus and tried to enter the whites-only waiting room. And when he attempted to enter, a group of white teenagers stopped him. He said, I have every right to enter this waiting room, according to the Supreme Court of the United States. They threw an obscenity at him and then a punch to the jaw. And listen to how John Lewis describes what happened next. At that point, Al Bigelow stepped in, placing his body between mine and these men, standing square with his arms at his sides. It had to look strange to these guys to see a big, strong white man putting himself in the middle of a fist fight like this, not looking at all as if he was ready to throw a punch, but not looking frightened either. They hesitated for an instant. Then they attacked Bigelow, who did not raise a finger as these young men began punching him. It took several blows to drop him to one knee. Now, after these teenagers spilled a a pool of blood of Lewis and Bert, some white policemen came to help and asked if Bert and Lewis wanted to press charges. And famously, they said, no, it's not part of our code of nonviolence. Suffering will test your solidarity. And if the solidarity is genuine, suffering will prove your solidarity. Bert and Lewis had nothing in common. Bert was white. Lewis was black. Bert from the north. Lewis from the south. Bert's father was a Harvard-educated lawyer. Lewis's father was a sharecropper. Bert played hockey. Lewis preached to chickens. Bert went to Harvard. Lewis went to Fisk. Bert was 55. Lewis was 20. And yet, the one thing they had in common was they shared a determination to see people treated with dignity and justice. So they sat together and they suffered together. This is solidarity. Now, for Christians, solidarity is a reality, whether we like it or not. Look again at our text. I want you to notice another instance of repetition. Look in verse 2. Talking about our friend Phoebe. Paul says that you may welcome her in the Lord. Verse 3, greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. Verse 7, greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. 8, greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. 9, greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ. 10, greet Apelles, who was approved in Christ. 11, greet my kinsman Herodion. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Twelve, greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphena and Tryphosa. Greet the beloved persons who've worked hard in the Lord. Thirteen, greet Rufus in the, Torsen in the Lord. Ten times we hear Paul repeat the phrase, in the Lord, in Christ Jesus, in Christ. Everyone say, in Christ. Now, to be in Christ is the reality for every person who has turned from their sin to trust in Jesus. And Paul, in Ephesians 1, gives us an incredible picture of what it means to to be in Christ. If you can find a podcast somewhere, go back and listen to what we're going through Ephesians about 
what, three, four years ago. And listen to that sermon on being in Christ. I want to just kind of run through this. I encourage you, if you want to turn your, if you want to turn your Bible to Ephesians 1, feel free. But I encourage you to just listen. I'm going to go rapid fire through the list of what the Holy Spirit says is the reality for those who are in Christ. Starting in verse 3. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Verse 4. We were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. We should be holy and blameless before him. In Christ, we are predestined for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. In Christ, we've been blessed with his glorious grace. In Christ, we have redemption through the blood of Jesus. In Christ, we have forgiveness of our trespasses. In Christ, we have grace lavished upon us. In Christ, we have obtained an inheritance. In Christ, we were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. If you are in Christ, this is your reality. Neither you nor I have merited any measure of Christ's grace. He gave that to us freely as a gift. Romans 5, 8 says, but God demonstrates his own love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for you and for me. To be in Christ, all you have to do is come to the end of yourself Recognize that you can't fix the sin in the world. You can't, even fix the, you can't even fix the sin in yourself. And to call out to Jesus. Believe that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died to free you from your sin and come to him for life and joy and hope. You do that, you are in Christ. Paul says in Acts 4 that no man can lay a foundation, or sorry, 1 Corinthians 3, no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. He is our stability. He is our solidarity. If we are in Christ, we are together. And nothing can change that. All who are in Christ are in Christ together. This means that solidarity is a reality, whether we act like it or not. And when we greet one another, when we embrace or kiss or give a word of benediction We are affirming the reality that we are in this together. The holy kiss is a demonstration of solidarity. Listen to how Peter describes this in 1 Peter chapter 5. He's been talking to pastors and he talks to those um, lay people. And to all, he says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, God may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. But he said, be sober minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith. Listen, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself, listen to these words of stability, restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Peter is writing to these Jews who are, these Christians who are scattered throughout the diaspora, throughout the Roman world. He's saying, listen, your suffering is just like everybody else's suffering because it's done in Christ. You are with each other. So suffer together. Resist together. Keep striving together. Keep loving together. Keep hoping together. And show that by greeting one another. 
The holy kiss is a demonstration of solidarity. But not just that, it's also a demonstration of equality. This may not be immediately evident at first glance in the text, but I encourage you to accept the invitation presented by John Chrysostom, one of the church fathers. I want to read something he said about this passage. Listen up. He says, I think there are many, even some apparently good commentators, who hurry over this part of the epistle because they think it is superfluous and of little importance. They probably think much the same about the genealogies and the Gospels. Because this is a catalog of names, they think they can get nothing good out of it. People who mine gold are careful even about the smallest fragments, but these commentators ignore even huge bars of gold. See, every list of names in the Bible is exactly that, a list of names. Every name has a story. Every name has an identity. Every name names a person who is made in the image of God and therefore has infinite worth and value. Every name is valuable to the God and Father of all. Every name in Scripture, like every name in this room, is not to be taken for granted, but is to be seen and acknowledged, considered, and recognized for who he or she is. That's what I think God wants us to get from from this passage. Every name is valuable. So whether you're Rico or Sheila or Tatiana or Ian or Devin or Morgan or Reed, or Santos. You have a story. You are made in the image of God. You have a purpose. And you are important. So, in this list, we have an incredible picture of what it looks like to be the Church of Jesus Christ. The Church of Jesus Christ is made up of individuals who are made in the image of God. And within these 16 verses, we have a group of people who are diverse in almost every way. I'm not going to go into every single name, but I do want you to note that on this list, we have men and we have women. We have Jews and we have Gentiles who are non-Jews. We have slaves. We have freemen. We have those who have never been slaves. We have poor. We have privileged. This is an incredibly diverse group of people. And they have so much to divide them, and yet they have one command, and that command is greet one another. Now, this is significant for two reasons. On one hand... The Apostle Paul is offering his greeting to these folks. Paul, the Apostle of Jesus Christ, greets women who would have been seen as on a lower tier in society by name. Prisca and Mary and Junia and Tryphena and Tryphosa and Julia. And he greets them by association. Yo, greet Rufus's mom because she gave me some chitlins too. Greet Nereus' sister. Paul greets slaves. That's what's meant when it says in verse 10, those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. And in verse 11, those belong to the family of Narcissus. He's talking to slaves. He's greeting them from the top. By greeting people in the church who, who the greater society would have deemed unworthy of greeting, the Holy Spirit through Paul is recognizing the inherent dignity and equality of every single individual in Christ's church. No one is too low on the economic pole. No one is unworthy because of their gender. No one is unworthy because of their ethnicity. And if we think so, the Holy Spirit gives us specific names to teach us. You shouldn't see it that way. 
I want you to imagine what it would be like to be someone on the margins of society without recognition, just trying to do your best to love God and love people. Working away in a school or an apartment complex or at a job that maybe isn't paying you very much. And you hear that a letter has come from an apostle and you know it's a good thing because there have been some disagreements in the church. See, he's writing this letter because what happened was, what happened was, in AD 49, Emperor Claudius had said, I want all the Jews to leave Rome. And so everyone, Christian and non-Christian, if you were Jewish, Jewish heritage, you had to leave. So Prisca and Aquila go across the sea. They split. Well, five years later, Emperor Claudius dies, and now the Jews are coming back. But now you've got a Gentile church that's doing stuff in a Gentile way. And then you've got Jews coming back and saying, hey, but what about our customs? And so Paul's writing the Romans to say, hey, you divided over this ethnic issue, but God wants to unite you as one church. So you're this person slaving away, loving God, loving people. You hear this letter coming, you're like, yeah, we need that letter because he got something to say to us. And you're standing in church and Phoebe's reading this letter. And when she comes to the very end of the letter, she says, greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. And your name is Mary. I didn't even know that he knew my name. I didn't even know I was being seen. I didn't even know that I had a part to play. I just thought I'm I'm trying to just love people, love God. But I didn't know if it was worth it. And now your name is in the letter. And people of every tribe and tongue and nation are going to read this letter. They're going to read your name. This is meaningful. It's meaningful for us, church. This means that that God sees every single one of you. He knows your name better than we do. Revelation chapter 2, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. He knows your true name. He knows your true identity. He doesn't just know if you're black or Hispanic or Native American, white or Korean. He knows the deepest parts of your heart. He knows exactly who he made you to be. He's giving you a name that encapsulates that identity. He says, that one's mine. And one day you'll find your name. He's going to call you by name. Much like what Paul does with Mary right here in this text. This is no small thing. When I greet you and look you in the eye, I am saying There's something deep in you that is valuable. That if if we were to see it, it would be impressive. Even if you don't see it in yourself. I see it. The way Bonhoeffer talks about this, he says, the word in my heart is weaker than the word of faith in my brother's mouth. When we greet each other, 
we welcome one another and we give a benediction to each other. What we're doing is we are remembering and calling out the reality. You have value, you have worth. God sees you. You're worth it. So the apostle is calling out the name. The second reason I think this is really important, this list of names, is because this invitation to greet one another is a foreshadowing of the opportunity to greet Jesus himself. Listen to what one New Testament scholar says about this greeting. The Romans will honor Paul and be ready to embrace him and his mission if they first honor those in their midst whom he identified as associates and friends. So Paul is writing this letter to the Romans, and he says, I plan to come to you, and I want your help to go on further, on to Spain. I'm going to get your help. I want you to help Romans. But in the meantime, before I get there, before I arrive in Rome, here's what I want you to do. First, welcome Phoebe as a saint. And second, greet one another. I want you to make this a habit. Greet each other. See each other. Recognize each other. Do it in preparation of my coming. So that when I come, I will find you reconciled to one another. Walking in the greeting that you have for one another. This is an important word for us today. Why? Because today is December 1st. Today is December 1st. We're going to start our celebration of Advent next week. But the church around the world is starting today. December 1st, first day of Advent. The season in which Christians wait and pray and anticipate Jesus coming back to rescue his church. And that anticipation is founded on and guaranteed by the anticipation that came and that was satisfied in the incarnation of Jesus, which we celebrate on Christmas. So during Advent, we have a season of waiting, waiting with joyful, faithful, relentless, zealous anticipation that all that we are working toward, all the good in our community, all the sanctification in our own hearts, it's all going to be worth it. Because one day Jesus is going to come back and he's going to make everything right. And in the meantime, how we anticipate that arrival is the same way the Romans do. Greet one another. Welcome one another. Be family. Live it out. Walk in it. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus sends out his disciples. And he says this. The one who receives you, receives me. 
The one who rejects you, rejects me. The one who receives me, receives the one who sent me. When we receive one another, when we greet one another, when we accept this invitation to see one another and to do life together and to see each other as family. I didn't talk about the brother and sister and mother that he talked about in this passage. We are family. One in God's family. We are anticipating and commemorating and a foreshadowing of the holy greeting we are going to receive. Just like Jesus did after he rose from the dead. He came to those disciples and he said, peace. That holy benediction, peace. Shalom to you. One day we're going to see it. One day we're going to recognize it. One day we're going to experience it until we practice it now with a holy greeting, a holy kiss, a holy embrace, a holy word of benediction. What it means to be the church of Jesus Christ is to greet one another. So what's our application? Greet one another. Don't wait to be greeted. Greet one another. When somebody comes into Christ's church for the first time, greet one another. Even if you know you've seen that person for the last six months and you've asked the name three times, greet one another. It's a sign of the kingdom. The DAP originated, some say, in the late 1960s among black GIs stationed in the Pacific during the Vietnam War. At a time when the black power movement was burgeoning, racial unrest was prominent in American cities. And draft reform sent tens of thousands of young African Americans into combat. The DAP became an important symbol of unity and survival in a racially turbulent atmosphere. Scholars on the Vietnam War and black Vietnam vets alike note that the DAP derived from a pact black soldiers took in order to convey their commitment to looking after one another. Several unfortunate cases of black soldiers reportedly being shot by white soldiers during combat served as the impetus behind this physical act of solidarity. Such events, combined with the racism and segregation faced by black GIs, created a pressing need for an act and symbol of unity. The DAP, an acronym for Dignity and Pride, whose movements translate to, I'm not above you, you're not above me, we're side by side, we're together, provided just this symbol of solidarity and served as a substitute for the black power salute prohibited by the military. DAP, one another. And when you do, recognize that you're not just giving a handshake. You're saying, I'm with you. We're on the same level. We're together. This is no small thing. I got your back. 
I'm with you. Why? Because Jesus has always been with me. Dignity and pride. As we go to the Lord's table today, we remember that we are one body made up of many members. And the only reason that's possible is because the body of Jesus was broken for us. So we take of one bread. We take of one cup to remember you have dignity. You have worth. You have value. Let's greet one another as we greet Christ. Bow your heads with me. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you so much for your grace to us. I thank you, Lord, for welcoming us into your family. I thank you for the privilege of being called sons and daughters of God. I thank you that when you invite us to know you, you invite us to know one another. And I pray that you would help us to do whatever you're calling us to do, to greet one another as you have greeted us. God, may our greeting be a foreshadowing, a taste of the deep communion we already have with you and that we anticipate when Jesus comes again. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.